You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. Introducing Meridian Experience from Retail Integration, the leading multi-channel ticketing, retail and membership system for visitor attractions. Working with visitor attractions for over 25 years, Retail Integration have developed the ultimate solution that enables some of Ireland's leading visitor attractions manage every aspect of their business, from ticketing and admissions to merchandising, food and loyalty programs in one single system. Customer experience is at the heart of what we do. Contact us today and let retail integration help you to exceed visitor expectations. We listen, we develop, we deliver. Oh, hello, and welcome to the Brown Sign Project, the podcast that talks to some of the most captivating and influential voices in the tourism and attractions industry. I'm Carlton Gadgetar. And I'm Carly Strawn. In this episode, we're super excited to bring you a conversation with one of my favourite people, the founder of Rework Consulting, Sarah Bag. We talk about Sarah's diverse and interesting career path and find out how working in a bar can actually be a hidden opportunity for a quick advancement. Sarah gives us helpful hints for both job seekers and employees when it comes to recruiting. And of course, we're going to hear Sarah's top tips for getting into and getting on in the tourism industry. We're also going to hear about how our vision of consulting will look in the future. Thanks, as always, must go to our series sponsors, Staff Savvy and Retail Integration. Now it's time for our chat. Okay, today we are joined by a lovely lady called Sarah Bag. Um, she is a founder of Reworks Consulting. Um, so welcome, Sarah. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Suffering a little bit from recovering from a virus, but all good. Oh, I'm so sorry to that. hear that. But hopefully you'll get better soon. Um, yeah, if you can just kind of give us a quick insight about you, what you do, um, and a little about yourself. So Rework Consulting was launched last year. Um, I help technology companies and attractions uh, grow their businesses through improving the technology partnerships that they have with each other. And then prior to uh rework launching i worked for a ticketing technology company here in the uk for about nine years and um i I kind of decided that i would bring my attractions and leisure hospitality operators experience together with that experience that i have from being a technology provider to help and give something back to the the attraction sector that's a very short synopsis of of my (laughs) career that's really, really good. Um, you're talking about technology. Are you still in ticketing or do you do other stuff? So uh, I help um, attractions um, find ticketing solutions and partners. Um, but like Carly will very much know, ticketing isn't just ticketing. It's membership, access control, fundraising, everything that goes with it, CRM, etc., um and um my business kind of took a bit of a, a different direction in autumn last year so um, i've also helped some technology companies with their sales marketing and sales conversion because obviously that's what i was i was doing um at tour systems um so i'm best placed obviously to advise um in that particular area of their businesses so i've kind of got two strands to to my business now so so you said um you know, you you sort of are kind of in a technology space nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What did you do at school and, and did it have anything to do with technology? Did you think that that was where you were going to end up? What what sort of brought no, that? Um, not yeah. at all. And ironically, I was the kid at school, like bearing in mind, I'm 45. So this is like, you know, SAP would probably seem a bit archaic to any young person that's listening. But I was in the era of you had like IT lessons where they taught you how to turn the computer on and off in which order seems completely madness now. Um, and I didn't even have a computer at home. My parents didn't have a computer. Um, when I was at university, I did art and design and there was no computer aided design at all on my course. The only time I came to use a computer was to do my dissertation in my last year. And I borrowed my friend's laptop. So it's quite ironic now um, that I've, I've fallen into the, the the technology world as such. Um, but it's a long. I think it's a long story, and I think that it, you you through your career you take steps, and one door opens another door, and before you know it, you're in <laughs> in a particular field where you never had any idea that you were going to get there. So. Yeah, I think they like say that for sort of the generations after us it sort of might seem a bit strange that there was a time when, you know, you would write essays and they were not on a laptop or you would, mm-hmm. you know, how did you know what your word count was and all this kind of stuff yeah. that most people's minds. But I re- recently, um, not that recently, a couple of years ago when we moved house, my parents did the thing that all parents do where they bring the stuff that you've left in their loft <laughs> and dump it at your door. Say, hey girl, you can have all this yeah. now. And in there, I found a certificate from my school that said Carly had used the uh, network and had been able to use the internet. (laughs) Hurrah, big tick. I can't imagine now that many kids get a certificate that says, today they learned to use the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so there was was obviously no Google uh, search engine uh, when I was at uni. If you... If you went to try and use the internet, it was like scrolling through pages and pages and pages of websites before you could actually find anything useful. So, yeah, not very much good for doing any research for your dissertation. So. Yeah, I remember them them times as well. I'm not going to show my age, but yes, I remember that as well. Um, no, brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Um, so um, kind of my, my question I want to ask you is kind of how did you get started in your career? Because I know you mentioned in school, you, you got a little bit of IT stuff and didn't have your own computer, but now you're kind of in full force IT stuff. So how did it start? It's really weird because I don't think, like when people say, how did your career start? I don't really, I don't really remember where there's a defining moment of like, oh, I decided to get into this career. Like I've, I've worked in leisure, hospitality and tourism since I was 14, 15. Um, And from like, you know, uh, I worked in Breen Leisure Park, big shout out to Somerset. Uh, still going really successful caravan and leisure park um when I was like 17 um and what, worked... what job did you do what was your oh job? my god like, <laughs> um I did work in the cafe and the bloke that ran, ran it like used to leave me in charge I just I absolutely have no idea what he was doing but yeah he let, used to leave me in charge for whole sh- you know half day shifts crashing up and I was cooking, I was cleaning, I was doing everything. And I still think like hospitality is the best industry 
for like learning so many skills. Um, so I, I guess what Carlton was asking was like the start of the career. And I think I went to university for three years and studied something completely different to this. So I, st- I studied textile design and illustration. And that was my passion at school. I loved art. So I followed my passion. And I and I still think like I've done some mentoring of young people over the last few years. And I still would say, if you're not sure what to do, follow your passion. Um, and because things change. And I think that I changed and I realized that probably my course wasn't right for me by the time I got, you know, to the end of it. But it was fine. I, I loved university and it opened up so many doors for me. Um, when I came back, I went traveling after university and came back, um, moved to London um, and got a job in a design company for, for six months and then quit. Um, that wasn't a success story, but I always think that as long as you learn from something, then everything is always a, a success. It's cliche, is that may sound. Um, and then I was desperately sending my CV out to all these design companies for weeks on end, getting rejection after rejection, and then realized, you know, London's expensive. I was just like literally caning money left, right and center. Um, And one day I just went on the march around Clapham, Clapham Junction, Clapham South, Clapham North, like pounded the pavements and put my CV into every bar and restaurant and was just about giving up to go home. And for those of you that were of my age will remember there was a pub chain in the UK called the Faraday and Firkin Group, and they had just been bought out and being developed into the O'Neill's Irish bar chain. And there was a flagship site in Clapham Junction that in, in London that was being converted. And I knocked on the door, they were due to open, and the assistant manager came in and, uh, and said, do you want to come in and have an interview? Um, the interview lasted about 10 minutes. So when can you start? So I started the next day, did the training just as a member of staff. Um, five weeks later, I was a supervisor. Three months later, I was assistant manager, and a year later, I was I was managing that bar. So I had a you know fast track through wow. to management, and I still think like running a bar or running a restaurant is like no experience that you'll ever get on any course anywhere like it's you learn so much so fast you know you're dealing with stock and cash and people customers and and staff and all those temptations in front of you freebies and booze and you know it um and it was crazy and I and I was only 23 um and I think I I think I soon realized after I don't know, a couple of years there um, that I didn't want to be pigeonholed. There was a lot of people that were, um, you know, Neil's were going sort of, you know, well, I'll just go to a bigger pub where they're taking more money um, and I'll just go up through through the, the chain. Um, and I knew that I just didn't want to be pigeonholed as a bar manager. So um, I went through to some recruitment companies and um, recruitment company put me forward for a, a role at Venopolis, which um, some in the UK will remember it well. It's a wine tasting and an events company that was used to be based in London Bridge. Unfortunately, um, it's closed down now, and now it's restaurants and bars. Um, but it was a three and a half acre site with several restaurants and bars, a wine tour, and a really successful event business. And I got the job as head of operations there, and from that um, 
management job of just managing, you know, 20 people in a bar. I went to managing over 100 at Phenopolis. So I, I definitely think if, you know, going back to what you said, Carlton, where did your career start? That was definitely it, I think. Yeah. Even though it wasn't conscious. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we were talking earlier about um, that moment in your life, which it when it feels like you get your first not you know I hate to say kind of real job but it feels quite momentous and it sort of happens usually sort of mid to late 20s or kind of you know your your late early 20s for want of a better phrase um where you feel like you suddenly have taken a bit of a step up in your career it's not a, a just a job that you go to every day anymore and it sort of seems quite momentous but as you get older you start to realize those milestones happen naturally they're not one-offs, you know, you continue to have those milestones for your career. So what was your next kind of big milestone after that, do you think? I guess learning like um, that I could do it, you know, like I was, that I was confident. I wasn't really winging it any anymore, you know. Um, and one thing I would say is if you, you know, there's pluses and minuses of obviously working for bigger pump companies or smaller companies, but because I'd worked for O'Neill's owned by um, Mitchells and Butler, which is a massive group and behind big groups, as you well know, you know, um, with the likes of uh, Gateway and Merlin and whatnot, you've got all these processes in place. So it gives you a kind of an understanding of like, oh, you know, there's this form for this, that needs, this needs to be completed for, you know, this requirement. So then when you go to a smaller company, you can take those learnings with you which is like really key but I think the thing that I would say about working for a smaller company is that you have the ability to learn so many different things because you you are forced to whereas when you work for a bigger company you usually have like a specialism like you know you're, you're you might be a marketing exec but a smaller company you're like five roles in, in yeah one. <laughs> you're the market and 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 we you know we say about when you run your own company like like you do so is that you are your own marketing person and the yeah. person and the HR person and the you know you wear many yeah. many hats kind of day to day yeah so I definitely think that like Vinopolis allowed me to sort of really get to grips with I knew what I was doing and I, then I I got interviewed for tours and museum manager at Chelsea Football Club um like two and a half years later and I wouldn't have been able to interview for that job and uh, got it you know two years prior to that at all um you know Vinopolis although it's a different product Vinopolis was a tourist attraction and bit albeit a very different one and and obviously Chelsea Football Club is also a tourist attraction with a museum and, and tours and I think that, that those you know for all the young people that are kind of listen would say you know well they're completely different jobs but they're not completely different jobs because they're completely transferable skills you just the end product is different you know you're showing that people around a football ground whereas the end product for Phenopolis was people were wine tasting and learning about wine so yeah I think that one of the the key things if I look back on my career would be stay flexible because those those skills you can pick up and push to a different sector completely. 
Yeah, absolutely agree with you. You know, you need to be flexible in what you learn. Again, as you mentioned, you can use it anywhere at any time um, in any kind of form as well. So, no, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Um, So it kind of leads me to my next question. um, And that's all about giving some advice, some top tips uh, on how how to work in industry. So what sort of tips would you give our listeners to get into the tourist attractions industry? I think probably going back to um, a girl called Olivia, who I was mentoring a few years ago, she was always saying to me, I don't, everyone else seems to have it worked out. Like, you know, my friend wants to be a lawyer. My friend wants to do this. I don't know what I want to do. And, and I always used to say to her, like, the worst thing you can do is get frozen, like, and just go, I don't know what to do. Just step forward. Just try anything. Like, go it, go in there and do something for a year and then if you you don't like it go and work in the retail department instead and try try that because you only end up um, opening more doors if you walk forwards and try something whereas if you get paralyzed by fear of choice then then you don't learn anything so that would be my one key thing is you know walk forward ask people find find out you know, go to fairs, go go to tourist attractions and ask the people that work there, how did you get this job? What do you have to do? And really think about what you love. And I think that's quite hard when you're young because you're like, I, 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 there's, you don't really understand the jobs market, so you don't really understand what's available. But if you love being by yourself in your own company, then perhaps you know, front desk, a uh, visitor attraction isn't going to be your thing. Yeah. But if you're a real people person, then anything sort of frontline that you're going to be interacting with the general public is going to be much more, you know, suited to your skill set. And then you then you start learning what, you know, other things as you as time goes on, what you like and what you dislike and what jobs are out there that suit you. But I think that's a starting point, really hone in on, what makes you happy is think, is the key thing yeah and I think you're right in terms of your example of you know I have a friend a friend who knows they want to be a lawyer and and we get a lot of that at school of you know are you going to be a fire person or a post delivery or there's a lot of you know kind of archetypal jobs that you sort of get doled out, you know, <laughs> you're going to be one of these or you're going to do that. And actually, like you say, the, the jobs market is actually massively more varied than that and, and way more intricate and interesting and things are much more transferable. You know, you don't have to choose to become a lawyer and go and do that for the rest of your life. And I think that not being afraid to to try something and, you know, if even if it's not your ideal job, if it entertains you for a few months while you figure something else out, then that's okay too. Like, it's not... Yeah. Doesn't need to be your whole career. And I think it's really interesting when you've worked with teams that, like, you know, as a consultant, for example, like Carly, with when you meet people and there's a diverse group in a project team, when they've come from different industries, it makes for a much more interesting dialogue. Whereas when somebody's just sort of stayed within the same, you know, fold almost for most of their career, sometimes you can get a bit stayed. So actually a mixture and side sidestepping to a different sector, but using the same skill set is is great, I think. Do you spend hours creating your rotors and then spend days constantly adjusting them? 
We have the solution. At Staff Savvy, we specialize in shift schedules and timesheet solutions for visitor attractions. Easily manage multiple complex teams of permanent, casual, freelance and volunteer staff across different locations and disciplines. With fast communication features, automatic compliance tools, training management and simple timesheet tools, Staff Savvy has been used and trusted by organisations such as V&A Dundee, the Southbank Centre and the Royal Albert Hall, with great cost-saving benefits. Visit us at staffsavvy.com forward slash brown sign project to learn more and schedule a demo of our magic rotor button. You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. You mentioned earlier, like you'd um, worked with some recruitment consultants and I found that really interesting. I'd be interested to hear more about that in terms of how do you find jobs? How did you find jobs? Because I will say I've fallen into all of my jobs <laughs> as I've gone through life. You know, I've gone from thinking, oh, that might be quite interesting and I'll do that for a bit and then found something I was really passionate about along the way. But when you were looking with a recruitment consultant, like how did that work for you? What was, what difference yeah. did that make? Well, I think from memory, because it's a very long time ago, I found a company called Barrett Clark. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Um, and they used to sort of deal specifically with the leisure industry. So whether it be gyms or um, attractions or tourist attractions or whatever it was, it was leisure related. And I had a really great contact there. Ironically, I'm still uh, connected to him now. And probably up until about, I don't know, six years ago, he still used to check in on me and sort of say, like, once every 15 months, are you happy? What's the deal? Are you looking for anything? Not in a pushy kind of way, just in a really great relationship. And I think, no, I don't know how um, what recruitment companies are like now, but you know, I think that relationship and somebody actually understanding you and what your focus is is key. Um, if you're unsure where where you should go, so I, I would say if you're starting out in your early twenties and you're not sure, sure, just make some appointments with some recruitment companies. And actually, even if you go for job interviews, I'm I'm still not a massive fan of any kind of interview environment. But there's value in going through that process because you learn and sometimes you even learn. Um, we won't say names, Carly, but um, I'm sure you'll recognize what I'm um, what I'm talking about, um, that perhaps you went through the process and you wouldn't have taken that job anyway. But actually, that's just as valuable. I, and I think that's this is something that gets easier as you get older, potentially. And I think probably the first time I realized that this was the way it worked was really kind of eye-opening for me was this job interview isn't about whether they like me. It's about whether I'm the good fit for the job. And it's also about whether they're a good fit for me as yeah. an employee. Like, I, you know, don't go to a job interview and just think, God, oh, please give me this job, you know, under any circumstances. If there's things in that job interview that you think, maybe this is, you know, a bit of a red flag that I don't really want to work here or you get vibes that, you know, actually this isn't a company I want to be involved in. You don't have to take it. Just mm -hmm. because someone offers you a job doesn't mean you have to take it. Um, and also, you know, that trust your instincts on those ones. Sometimes, you know, 
it might seem like your dream job, but it's actually, you know, very, very far away from, from yeah. what you want in reality. A hundred percent. And I think that if you, if you're an employer, I can't stress this enough. Like, like it should be just as much about you selling your company to that person. You know, like it's not a case of here's a job description and these are the things I'm going to tell you to, what you should be doing. It's like, well, what are you going to give to the employee? You know, like, especially in this, this, this sector, we're, we're so struggling at the moment, aren't we? With, with recruitment, everyone's got massive vacancy lists and it's like, well, sell the job to those people, you know, like, you know, what are you going to give to that person? Because there's so many other companies out there that are going to pay better or less, you know, unsociable hours, etc. So it works both ways. You know, you want to be selling yourself to that company when you go for a job interview and vice versa. I I think I don't think I've ever been in a job um, as much as Chelsea as we used to get applicants for that role. Oh, my God. Every, every job um, that we used to put out, we used to receive hundreds literally hundreds and I used to have to be so ruthless with my you know you know you see the cv you print them all out um and then you're like yes no yes no yes no because like it's part there's piles of cvs and that I would say that's one thing Carlton like people that are doing cvs I have seen some messy cvs in my time spelling mistakes bad grammar and there's no kind of like real excuses. And I know that sounds proper old school, but you, when you're up against, you know, that person doesn't know you, the person that's, you know, interviewing, they're just looking black and white. And actually, if you haven't taken the time to, you know, look at how that you're pre being presented on a piece of paper, that what does that say about what you're going to be like when you're going to be employed by them? Absolutely. I mean, even like I know employees now are being so ruthless because the job market is so saturated. They're just looking at job description and look at the CVs and they're comparing it to see if it's similar. If it's not, you are just being kicked to the side um, yeah. because applicants are not changing their CVs to meet that job's requirement. They're mm. kind of, oh, we'll just blank it. We'll, I'll just send my same CV to everybody and mm. hope for the best. But no, that's actually delaying the process on the recruiter side because you haven't spent that time to kind of tailor it. On the next level of that as well is if you do tailor it, you're going to shine. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely shine from the piles of CVs that you do. So, yeah, totally agree on that. The CV is, yeah. is important, but it just needs to be tailored. It's a weird, it's kind of a weird place to be, really, I think, when you're starting out because I like one of the things that I, I I thought about when I was coming to this um podcast is like challenging the norm like being different you know I think it's really really important but then sometimes if you're too different you know you haven't thought about the key competencies that you need for that job you do need to cover all those bases but then with a with a spark of your own you know to bring something new to that interview yeah, and we had this, you know, we have this conversation quite a lot. You know, I, I'm really passionate about kind of bringing your whole self to work. And it is there's a time and a place for fitting in. And there's a time and a place for being unusual and standing out and doing something really different. And I think it's being able to understand when those are appropriate. And, and also when standing out, if you haven't met the basics, 
is actually really not very helpful. Let's like, say I want to know that you can you have these transferable skills and that you can do this job kind of standing on your head before you get fancy with it. <laughs> you know, I want to yeah. see the fancy stuff too, but I do kind of need to check some boxes first and, and know, yeah. you know when when you can really kind of push the boundaries of what's acceptable. And I think that's where like the challenging thing around, you know, the pandemics happened because I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that work in colleges. Um, they feel like their year groups are way behind. And I don't mean just like education wise, but uh, socially, because obviously people were just locked in their rooms for, for so long. And I know that years ago, it was really easy to get jobs when you're 14 and 15. And now it's like near on impossible. You can't employ people um, that young. But those kind of things, your first jobs are like totally, you know, groundbreaking in terms of how they mold you and stuff. And because there's a whole generation now that have had to delay that for like 18 months, they haven't, you know, gone out into the jobs market or haven't socialized themselves into, you know, they probably only got friends that are their age, which is like key, isn't it? The first time you go and work in a workplace, suddenly there's all, you're dealing with people that are like twice your age and younger than you, all, all sorts. And I think that's a really key learning for like for yeah. as an employee. Yeah, I think um, we talk about, you know, the advancements in remote working. And I think I'm a huge, huge, you know, massive will bang the drum for remote working because I think it can massively revolutionise our industry and, and bring talent to where maybe, you know, doesn't need such a geographical location. But I do think those initial jobs when you're starting your career, you do sort of need to sit in an office with, mm -hmm. you know, Marjorie who does it the accounts yeah. and Steve who you know is it yeah got 12 kids and wants to tell you about them all you sort of need those those older people's experiences to kind of guide you and to, to yeah. mold you a little bit and I think you, you lose a lot if you're just at home you know behind a screen not not kind of getting that one-on-one -on -one experience and I think a lot of people put off those jobs that are more in person because they see them somehow as like lower jobs you know yeah. they're on the rankings so I come out of university and I maybe don't want to go and have worked in McDonald's for six months. But actually, sometimes those are the jobs that absolutely make you who you are and make you really kind of understand what working is like. Because yeah, your job can be very different to working in McDonald's and serving people, but the skills aren't. The skills are still no. skills. And I also think like if you, you know, do go into management, you get a lot more than credibility for the fact that you've been the frontline staff or you've been a cleaner or, or you've done the hard graft there's not this manager saying oh I think you should do it this way with you know teams going well what do you know well I do, I do know because I you know I have been there and I've dealt with all the annoying customers that have just given you a load of grief at the end of the day when you're really tired or a drunk person that's like you know refusing to get out of your bar and it's really invaluable to do the starting jobs you know that aren't so great pay but I had just as great a time when I was paid 11 grand as I did when I was paid 50 grand so you know it makes things easier money but that it doesn't necessarily give you a, a, a better time you know yeah yeah I think there's a there's a lot to be said for as your earnings grow you'll just you just grow into them I think there's a lot of things of you know what you can live on at 18 is very different to what you can live on at 45 but yeah. I I do think there's a lot to be said for 
you know, not worrying too much, as long as you can pay your bills initially about, you know, is that is that a really great earning job for me? It's like, well, think about more about what experience you might get from it or where it might lead you to, or, you know, it, it, you don't need to be sort of, un- unless you can't afford to live your life, then worry less about, you know, whether whether the money is important or not to you. I mean, something that's really important that I've kind of spoken to people about or people speak to me, it's kind of like I finished university, I want to go straight into management. And I'm like, that's great. And I love the power and the enthusiasm for it. But you need to start at the bottom and work your way up. The reason is because a lot of the managers have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they've started from the bottom and worked their way up. So you can't just jump into management in a tourist attraction expecting to manage people when you have no idea how it feels to be in that person's shoes. As I mentioned, I mentioned a couple of podcasts before. Um, I started as a cleaner. Mm. I have big respects for cleaners in attractions because I've been there. I've had to clean crap off toilet seats and pee all over the place. So I understand what they have to go through. So when I do have a team like that, I have more empathy if they kind of don't want to do it or have felt uncomfortable than if somebody came straight from uni and go, yeah, I'm going to be a manager and not understand that concept. So thank you very much for sharing that. If you don't like cleaning toilets, I would avoid you um, being a bar manager because unfortunately that's your job when you're a manager as well as anything else. Big yellow glove that goes all the way up to your shoulder. (laughs) When the toilets are like blocks on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock, no, you're not going to ask anyone else to do it. That gets paid minimum wage issue that's going to do it. So, Well, that... that that fits fits very well to my next question. I'm going to yeah. ask you is, um, what would you tell your 18 year old self about getting into the industry? So, what sort of skills do you think um, you would love to get? I would say say yes to a lot of things, even if your fear tells you, "Oh, I don't think I can do that," or "But I don't have the skills to do it," or "X person probably do it better." say yes put yourself forward for things and push through the the fear because i i love loads of self-help books i've studied i'm a trained coach and i i I think that if you if you can push through boundaries of fear then it just breeds more confidence in you and like gradually then that fear becomes nothing so that that would be my first um thing to my younger self don't be afraid to try new things and I guess the second one would be don't compare. Like, don't compare to your friends that are doing X. You know, like when I was in O'Neill's r- running around like a headless chicken on Friday and Saturday nights, most of my friends had Monday to Friday jobs. They were all out having a great time on Friday and Saturday nights while I was working my backside off. But you know what? I had such a great time in that job. And, you know, I, I, I saved a load of money as well, which... You know, they didn't they didn't have. And actually, it was my fast track, even though, I, you know, it wasn't like a management training program or anything. It was my fast track. So it swings and roundabouts. And I like I, I wouldn't change anything about the, the last 30 years at all. So, yeah, I would definitely say pushing through the fear, saying yes to lots of things, um, asking for help. Um, don't be afraid to say that you don't know something. It's one of my pet hates when people say, yeah, yeah, I know. And then you go, do you? 
<laughs> and then they, it turns out they don't know. Oh, don't get me started on that, please. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's just so important. If you don't know how to do it, just say you don't know. It's not mm. going to it's not going to affect your career. You're not going to get fired, you know. And I think a lot of people have that fear of like, oh, you know, I don't want to look like I don't know weak or yeah. I just don't know this thing. Just ask for help, you know. Yeah. That's it. It's just very, very simple. I think we've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but I used to do um, induction training at a a historical house. And I will tell you now, there is one thing you need to know about me, and it is I know nothing about history. And it's I'm really good at social history. But dates? No idea. Barely know when my own birthday is. Certainly can't remember dates about history. And, you know, that would be a thing that people were genuinely scared about. They'd be like, you know, someone's going to come in. They're going to ask me about this specific point in history. And I'm not, I'm not going to know, you know, and, and try and think, oh, I, you know, I have to read all these books or whatever. And I'm I'm only going to work in the cafe, you know, do yeah. I might not know all of this. And so I used to say to them, you know, actually, the best advice you can have is tell them you don't know, but they tell them something you do know. So if you have a guest who asks you a really specific question, you can say to them, oh, do you know what? I actually don't know that. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, do whatever you need to do, sort of make yourself feel better about it and say, I can find out for you. Mm. But here's also something really cool that I do know that's kind of linked to it. And I tell you, I got through three years of working in a historical house with that of just, you know, remember the tidbits, remember the things that are really useful to you, but but be kind of genuine about it. And I think that the earlier you can start that in your career, the easier you find it then as you get later along. Yeah. You can always find the answer, but if you panic in the starting, you're you're actually going to make things worse. So you're better off just admitting it <laughs> straight up. Yeah, I think there's always somebody, isn't there, that whether it's your specific sector or your specific company that you're working for, that will help you. And you know, like I've I don't think I've ever felt quite so like that as I have done in the last year since la- launching Rework. Like literally, so many people like will help me you know they're not getting paid to help me but well, some of them are but but you know most of them are not getting paid to help me and yet you know they they walk over hot, hot coals to do you know to put themselves out which I think is like if you can put that out and you help other people then it will come back 360 around to you whether it happens straight away but yeah helping other people yeah exactly and we talked kind of about the past and and all the courses that's gone on and what you talk to yourself. How do you see the job that you do now changing in the future? And and obviously you work in tech, so that's a potential thing. Is that do you see the job that you do now changing, or jobs that you've done in the past changing? Whether that's through technology or you know market changes or sort of what what do you see in your crystal ball for you? Well, I think there'll always be a role for consultants because I think that there's um a, there's a time gap, as in people don't have time for things. They're running their own business uh, and they need somebody to you know to speed up that time. Also, if you're if you're working, whether it be in a visitor attraction or somewhere else, you you're not an expert in everything, like. You can't be an expert in everything. So there's always going to be a place for somebody as an expert to come in and, and fill those knowledge gaps for you. You know, how how the role changes, you know, I it's difficult, isn't it? Because te- technology has, I know everyone always says, oh, it's moving so fast. 
But um, I remember an old partner of mine used to say to me, but technology's always moved fast. You know, you just look at it in a very different way, you know, from the light bulb to the car wheel to, you know, it, it's, it, it's just a different type of technology. Things have always been fast paced. And I think that the industry probably will change more than consultants. You know, the, the role of where does the, where does the staff member, where do they add most value? You know, we've already seen it, haven't we, you know, through the pandemic and what the shift of kiosks again, and you know, that they, they were popular back however many, 10 years ago, and then people want to use them again. Um, but I think that technology should always be there to support us sometimes when it's the worst possible version of technology is there it's just there for the sake of it it's not adding any value and it's our I guess it's our job as consultants to um, make sure that you're pointing to the best case of technology for those clients you know using their money wisely to add some value to their to yeah. their business yeah I think you're right that there's always a gimmick isn't there and I think you like said about technology moving fast is it's it's not moving faster we're just getting older and so yeah. you get further away from the you know you, the things that you remember as a kid seemed they just were there you know so we talk about you know we we don't we didn't have laptops when writing dissertations but we wouldn't have thought anything about the VHS player or you know yeah. the player in our house or the tape cassettes or whatever because they just we were we were born with them and so it's it seemed mm. kind of natural you grew up with them um, but I do think you're right about there's there's always a gimmick. There's always the, oh, it's a big new thing. It's a big new invention. And whether that's kiosks or apps or whatever it is, I think there's always a, a, a leaning towards maybe throwing your money at it when really what you need is a human being and some understanding yeah. of what you're trying to do. What's really interesting is um, the rise of AI as well and how that's going to change our industry, especially behind the scenes. So kind of marketing and finance, um, using AI to kind of number crunch and analyze information, um, which is going to be really great, but I don't know how yet that's going to affect our front of house staff yeah. um, or our managers, how, how, how AI is going to play a role in that. Yeah, well, you'll see at the moment, it's not that far advanced that you can just plug it in and leave it alone. Because you, if you think about like AI for like copywriting, for example, it's very clear if you use any of those tools that it's been, you you know, you're using an AI copywriter, you know, the, the, the lack of personal human skills gone into that copywriting is very evident. So you still need somebody to go in there and then add that human element to it. How, how that changes in the future it totally scares um, me to think that there's um, AI artists out there now as in like somebody that can re replicate um, a painting in the style of Dali for example and then they can sell that piece of work because I'm like to me that's a craft so I think that some things will go back 360 a bit like farming hopefully where people start thinking about where they buy their food and the artisan type of element that that will be more valuable to them to buy off somebody that does is a maker an artist the maker and then the other stuff will just be the mass produced yeah and I think we're sort of in that market generally anyway and I think to bring that to sign of attractions I think 
and I, you know, write in by all means, email us with your complaints about what I'm about sure. to say. <laughs> um, because I think we went through a bit of a period with escape rooms that was a bit like that. And maybe yeah. also kind of the trampoline park. There was a bit of a mm. boom. People sort of started kind of putting them up quite quickly. It, you know, that boom was over and, and there was then suddenly lots of places set empty. And But I think the difference between those things that can be replicated quite quickly, that have, you know, low overheads and, and but high cost and, and people are turning just for a profit versus something that, you know, you go to a little museum that's owned by the person that's made the collection and, that real personal experience, I think, is a very vast scale. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right. I think we search out those real experiences. Yeah. We, especially with leisure time, it, it's a, a big thing. They almost kind of like, they add value, but they don't replace. Because if you look, look at like, you know, the artists, um, immersive galleries, for example, you know, like Frameless, it's open in, uh, in central London. You, they're not replacing Van Gogh's paintings. Like, come on! Like, you go. I never forget the day that I went to the first, the first time to the National Gallery and was like blown away at sixteen at how big the paintings were compared to the pictures in the book and how depth the color and you know looking at how you know thick the paint was and everything. You don't get any of that from you know an immersive gallery, but you're giving the opportunity for people to see that that probably wouldn't ever be able to go to wherever you know the sunflowers are now and it it allows art to be more accessible which is you know the, the point isn't it of the cultural sector while museums in the UK were made free back however many years ago now um yeah. to make it more accessible so it does add value I just 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 don't think necessarily technology replaces yeah, we're still looking for a, an experience at the at the mm. heart of it. And I don't think in most cases you can replace human experience with an AI experience, yeah. tech experience, definitely. I think a really good example of that was the London 2012 Olympics. Um, uh, and again, write in if you, if you want to complain about what I'm just about to say. <laughs> um, but when there was like, those people were complaining about the, ticket staff in the um tube stations stuff having to stand out front and not be out the, the back but, but I was like well what is that that's the craziest complaint ever like it was amazing how that they were out the front greeting everyone helping like the international visitors use the machines and you know it was the best time I was I loved living in London in 2012 and so therefore technology is not replacing if you look at that in a visitor attractions sense you know get the staff out there get them greeting and interacting but they don't necessarily need to be behind a till selling the ticket yeah anymore. absolutely excellent thank you so much for that and I'm so sorry we've actually come to the end of our podcast so yeah. thank you thank you so much for your insights and all the information you shared I know something's going to uh, our listeners are going to take that away and use it and be better in what they do. So thank you so much. No so uh, actually, I did like, I've got one more question to ask you. Mm -hmm. um, is where can we find you on, on, on the digital space? So my website is freeworkconsulting.co.uk and um, I'm on LinkedIn uh, as well. Uh, my own personal page and company page. 
when they want to complain about your comments about the Olympics. <laughs> That's yeah, <what> write in. <laughs> Excellent. So that's your invitation to everybody who's listening to write in if you have a complaint <laughs> on two nice. comments we'll, on this we'll show. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Um, that's it for us for this podcast. Have a fantastic day. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much for tuning into the Brownstone Project. In our next episode, we have a conversation with Ted Yates. He's an award-winning hotelier and an expert in creating great customer experience. Thanks, as always, to our series sponsors, Staff Savvy and Retail Integration. The Brown Sign Project was edited by Paul Tyler. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Brown Sign Pod, or you can find us on LinkedIn.